0: You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me you know. your bubbles head. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make it an offer. You talking to me? Straight out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why, I'm so simple. When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. Or when I'm bad, yes. I'm better. It's the lion! Snap out of it! If call me Mr. Oh, Boy's best friend, Mrs. Mother. You have no style. You're going to all day, little dog. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I spent last Sunday hanging out with friends. We went on a hike. We did an escape room board game, saw Jurassic Park 3D in theaters, had drinks, got dinner. Enough to completely drain my social batteries for a whole week, even though we all went out for dinner uh, the next night, too, because we were celebrating a uh, 10-year milestone of mine. For a thing I have not publicly discussed in this podcast and uh, for now don't intend to, but it was it was a big milestone and I was very excited. No movie reviews this week. I had too many night things, but I get my Wednesdays back starting this week. So that'll free me up potentially for more movies and other nonsense. I was taking a basic search and rescue class. I think I mentioned it a few weeks ago, but that's done until we do the big disaster simulation, which will be on a backlot, which that will be very fun. I'm very excited about that, but that's not until November. Um, Like I said, i did see The 30th of Jurassic Park, but technically that falls under my rule of not reviewing movies for the studio I work for. I'm pretty sure it's even out of theaters now. I think that was like a one-week situation, but yeah, that's that's what that is. <laughs> Strike updates. Did not check this morning, but from my experience this week working for a studio, <laughs> everything's mess. The AMPTP has a crisis PR firm now, which is never a good sign. The talks have broken down more or less from what it looks like, the WGA and PTP talks. So, yeah, everything's a dumpster fire and everyone is mad and everyone's accusing everybody of everything else. So that's what's going on in strike land over in the film business. So with that chipper news, let's get into it. It's a new month, and that means we have a new topic. This month, we're looking at the lives of four actresses whose careers either started or reached their height in the 1950s. It's my birthday month, so I needed something interesting, but easy, and this felt like a very good topic to pick for that particular intersection of needs. This week, an actress who started her career as a singer before becoming one of the biggest names at the box office at the height of her career, Doris Day. With that, Let's take our places, it's showtime. Gonna take a sentimental journey Gonna set my heart at ease Gonna make a sentimental journey To renew old memories Got my back it's almost as if it were fate. Doris Mary von Kappelhoff was named after silent film actress Doris Kenyon when she was born on April 3rd, 1922, though she'd fib for most of her life, stating she was born in 1924 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Her father was a quote unquote choir professor and her mother was a homemaker or whatever the current term is for stay at home parent. But that's what she did when Doris was born. Doris had a happy first few years with a vibrant imagination, until her parents divorced as a result of her father being a dirty, dirty cheater and abandoning his family. At the age of five, Doris developed an interest in dance, and by the mid-1930s, she'd formed a dance duo that performed in nationwide competitions. The duo were actually very good and incredibly promising, even winning a major award that would have bestowed on them lessons at a prestigious dance academy in Hollywood. A farewell party was thrown for the two on October 13th, 1937. And you know from history in general, anytime there's a specific date, nothing good ever happens. On the way to get after party milkshakes from this party, the car they were in was hit by a train after the driver, who was a friend of theirs, tried to beat the train across the train tracks and failed. Everyone survived but Doris's right leg was broken in multiple places, ending her chances at becoming a professional dancer. While ailing from the broken leg, Doris would spend her days singing along with the radio. Turns out she didn't sound half bad. Impressed by what she heard, Doris's mother signed her daughter up for singing lessons. After just three lessons, the teacher told Doris's mother that she had "quote unquote" tremendous potential, and ultimately gave Doris three lessons per week for the price of one because the family couldn't afford any more than one per week. But she believed in Doris. Years later, Doris would say that this teacher, Grace Rain, had had the largest impact on her singing style and career. While she was receiving these singing lessons, Doris got her first professional gig as a vocalist on the radio program Carlin's Carnival, while also singing in a local restaurant called Charlie Yee's Shanghai Inn. During one of her radio performances, she caught the attention of Barney Rapp, who was looking for a female vocalist and asked her to audition. He was like a band leader. According to Rapp, he had auditioned about 200 other singers up to this point and had yet to find anybody promising. Obviously, Doris got the gig. In 1939, rap convinced Doris Kappelhoff to take up the stage name Doris Day because Kappelhoff, he believed, was too long for marquees. Day came from the song Day After Day, which rap thought Doris sang beautifully. So that's where the new surname came from. After rap, Doris worked with big band leaders and big musicians of the day, including Bob Crosby and Les Brown. In 1941, Doris appeared as a singer in three Soundies with the Les Brown Band. Soundies were essentially an early form of music videos. That's the easiest way to describe what those were. After that, she told Brown that she wanted to return to Cincinnati and get married. She was in love. That man that she was in love with was named Al Jordan, who was a trombone player, and the two were wed when Doris was just 17 years old. By all accounts, he was not well-liked by people who knew him, and when news got out that Doris had gotten married, her mother was super-duper pissed. Jordan was a violent schizophrenic, it would turn out, and even tried to induce a miscarriage by beating his wife when Doris told him that she had become pregnant. Shortly after the baby was born, Doris left him. She was a divorcee at just 19 years old, and Jordan died by suicide not long after. Her son, Terrence Paul Jordan, would eventually take on her third husband's last name, Melcher, after he adopted him. After that whole debacle, Doris returned to the local radio, and while performing on a midnight show called Moon River, Les Brown heard Doris's show and wanted her back. She agreed. Back working with Brown, Doris recorded her first hit recording, Sentimental Journey, which released in early 1945. It soon became an anthem for World War II servicemen, and she was so associated with the song that she'd re-record it several times throughout her career. While singing with the Les Brown Band, and after nearly two years on Bob Hope's weekly radio program, Doris toured extensively across the United States. She left the band in 1947, and Hollywood snapped her up. By this point, Doris had gotten remarried, and it lasted longer than the first one, but only just. The couple had been long distance, and they broke up in like 1948-ish, leaving Doris devastated she thought they could make the long distance thing work. To cheer her up, her representation threw her a big Hollywood party. It was at that party that she met songwriter Julie Stein and his partner Sammy Kahn, both of whom had been impressed with her performance of the song Embraceable You. So much so, they had her test for the film they were currently working on, which was called Romance on the High Seas, which would released in 1948. The director of that film wanted an unknown actress, and Doris was ultimately cast. She was technically an unknown actress because, well, she'd never acted. Being cast in the movie surprised Doris as she had no acting experience and admitted to the director that she was a singer, not an actor. Director Michael Curtis appreciated her honesty and liked her whole vibe, stating that she had, quote, freckles that made her look like an all-American girl. And it turned out Curtis would be credited with discovering a movie star. In Romance on the High Seas, Doris stole every single scene she was in and turned out was a natural comedian. Doris Day became an overnight movie star with a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. Doris recorded the song Someone Like You for her next film, My Dream Is Yours, from 1949. The next year, the U.S. servicemen in Korea would vote her as their favorite star. Doris followed all of that up by appearing in a string of musicals, including On Moonlight Bay from 1951, By the Light of the Silvery Moon from 1953, and Tea for Two from 1950. On average, at this time, she was making about two to three films per year, playing a typically happy-go-lucky extroverted tomboy who gently challenged the image of a 1950s woman. Very, very, very gently. But it was there. (laughs) Doris had never expected to be in the film business, but relished the stability a Hollywood contract offered her at that time, as it allowed her to have her mother and son with her in Hollywood and live in a level of comfort that she hadn't had since she was very, very young. Despite being a movie star, Doris never acted like one on set in the stereotypical sense of that era. To her, leading a picture meant showing up on time, knowing her lines and being ready to work no matter what she was doing or if she liked the script or the project or her coworkers or what have you. To her, quote, a deal was a deal and getting suspended for turning down work or being difficult or whatever, whatever reason movie moguls would make up to, you know, put stars in line to her was a four letter word. Suspension was a four letter word. Of course, that mindset can lead to one getting taken advantage of, but we will get to that a little later. In 1951, Doris married her third husband, motion picture agent Martin Melcher. He would become Doris's agent, and she trusted him implicitly to run her career and finances. That same year, she saw her biggest hit for Warner in I'll See You In My Dreams, a musical biopic about lyricist Gus Kahn that broke 20-year box office records. Doris then appeared as the title character in the comedic Western-themed musical Calamity Jane in 1953. Doris loved it because it allowed her to be a tomboy, which she always claimed to be. A song from the film Secret Love won the Academy Award for Best Original Song and became Doris's fourth number one hit single in the United States. During this period, Doris released albums between each film and also had her own radio program which broadcast on CBS in 1952 to 1953. Between 1950 and 1953, the albums from 6 of her film musicals charted in the top 10. After all of that success, Doris decided to leave Warner by not renewing her contract. By this point, Doris was primarily recognized and known as a musical comedy actress, but she began to accept more dramatic roles because back then, those performances tended to be taken more seriously. Her first dramatic star turn was as singer Ruth Edding in Love Me or Leave Me from 1955, which received critical and commercial success and became Doris's most successful film to that point. It was also Melcher's first film in his role as her manager. Her co-star in the film, James Cagney, said that she had, quote, the ability to project the simple direct statement of a simple direct idea without cluttering it. Doris pretty much agreed to Cagney's sentiment and felt that it was her best film performance at the time. Somehow, she didn't get an Oscar nomination for it, which feels like a travesty because she's very good in that. Doris had wanted another agent to kind of like pad out her team because a lot of other people had that. And she kind of wanted to be associated with an agency so she'd have more ability to get different writers and different performers and different just people in her circle. But her husband would not allow that. According to her, that killed the romance. You don't I don't get how people can have their like representation be somebody in their life because it's piling too many things on like and it's expecting too much out of one person. But that's just me. But he was working hard for her. He got her a starring role in the Alfred Hitchcock film The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956. Part of the film shot in North Africa and Doris did not want to go to North Africa. But a deal was a deal. The first day of shooting, Doris was distraught at the treatment of the animals on the set, and as a result, the production ensured that they would be taken care of for the remainder of their time there. This would be a cornerstone moment in Doris's life, as she would set up an animal rights charity in 1978 as a result of what she saw there. In The Man Who Knew Too Much, Doris sang two songs, Que Sera Sera, which won another Oscar for best song, and is probably, arguably, her most famous Today, and Will Love Again. After three dramatic films, Day returned to her musical comedy roots with The Pajama Game from 1957, which was based on the Broadway play of the same name. She also appeared in the Paramount comedy Teacher's Pet from 1958, and It Happened to Jane from 1959. Billboard's annual nationwide poll of disc jockeys ranked Doris as the number one female vocalist nine times in ten years, basically from 1949 to 1958, but her success and popularity as a singer was now being overshadowed by her box office appeal, which was about to reach its apex. This started with 1959's Pillow Talk, for which Doris received a nomination for the Best Actress Oscar, which would be her only career Oscar nomination. Pillow Talk also marked a change in her on-screen persona, as the director of that film wanted her to be a little bit more outwardly sexy, he dressed her a little bit more provocatively, before that it had been a little bit, quite a bit more muted and subtle. Doris, Rock Hudson, and Tony Randall, the latter of two were her two co-stars of Pillow Talk, appeared in two more films together after that, Lover Come Back from 1961, and Send Me No Flowers from 1964. In 1960 and from 1962 to 1964, Doris Day was the number one performer at the box office. She was the second woman to be number one four times after Shirley Temple. During this time, she starred in comedy films like Please Don't Eat the Daisies from 1960, The Touch of Me from 1962, and 1963's The Thrill of It All and Move Over Darling. The theme song for Move Over Darling was co-written by her son, Terry, who was starting to make a name for himself in the music business. If the name Terry Melcher sounds familiar to you, that is because he was involved with the Manson family and lived at the home that Manson had his family target, which led to the death of Sharon Tate and her friends and Stephen parents. That's, that's why the name Terry Meltzer is probably familiar to you. But anyway, between these comedic film performances, Doris was appearing in things like the thriller Midnight Lace from 1960, which was an update of the stage thriller Gaslight. 1965's Do Not Disturb, which was popular with audiences, would mark the beginning of the downside of Doris Day's popularity. With the emergence of the sexual revolution in the late 1960s and the final nail in the coffin of the Hays Code, which was a censorship guideline studios had been forced to follow for decades, and with all these new, different kind of more risque films coming out, some critics and comics began referring to Doris as, quote, the world's oldest. Virgin. For the first time since 1960, the actress slipped from the list of top box office stars, last appearing in the top 10 with the hit film The Glass Bottom Boat from 1966. And it's not like she wasn't being offered or given the opportunity to be more risque. She just didn't really seem to have a desire to be that way. For example, Doris Day turned down the role of Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate, a role that eventually went to Anne Bancroft. In her memoirs, Doris said that she had rejected the part on moral grounds, finding the script quote, vulgar and offensive. It should be noted that Doris was a pretty devout Christian scientist at this point, and had been since 1949, so on brand. She would stray from that religion in the later years of her life, however. Despite slipping in popularity, Doris soldiered on, starring in the Western film The Battle of Josie in 1967. That same year, Day recorded the Love album, though for whatever reason, that wasn't released for 27 years. In 1968, she appeared in her final feature film, the comedy With Six, You Get an Egg Roll. It would also be her husband's last picture. Martin Melcher died on April 20th, 1968, of an enlarged heart that went untreated due to the couple's Christian science beliefs. With Melcher no longer handling the books, Doris got some nasty surprises. First, she found out that her dearly departed husband and his business partner and advisor, Jerome Bernard Rosenthal, had squandered her earnings, leaving her a half million dollars in debt. She thought she had 20 million sitting in the bank. Rosenthal had been Doris's attorney since 1949 when he had represented her in her second divorce. Doris sued Rosenthal in February 1969 and won the suit in 1974, but she did not receive her compensation until a settlement was reached in 1979. So that's a long time to not have your money and need to have money to pay a bunch of lawyers to get your money. If that wasn't enough, Doris also learned, much to her displeasure, that Melcher had committed her to a television series that became known as the Doris Day Show and a bunch of other television specials to boot. Doris was a veteran film actress and had less than zero desire to be on TV, but the actress felt like she had to go ahead with the series anyway, and it would probably pay the lawyer bills. Actually, it paid the lawyer bills. The first episode of The Doris Day Show aired on September 24th, 1968, and featured a re-recorded version of "K Sarasara" as its theme song. Doris stuck with the show, working 18-hour days, wanting to make sure the show was as good as possible in order to repay her debts, but she only agreed to do so after CBS gave creative control to her and Terry. The show was on for five years and is best remembered for its abrupt season-to-season changes in casting and premise. Despite being screwed over by her husband, Doris believed to her dying day that Melcher had merely trusted the wrong person and that he had done no intentional wrongdoing on her behalf. After the end of the television show's run in 1973, Doris largely retired from acting but completed two television specials. They were the Doris Mary Ann Kapelhoff special from 1971 and Doris Day Today in 1979. And on top of that, she was a guest on various shows throughout the 1970s. From 1985 to 1986, Doris hosted her own television talk show called Doris Day's Best Friends on the Christian Broadcasting Network. The network canceled the show after just 26 episodes, despite it being relatively popular. Not to speculate, but also knowing how people were at that time in the name of religion. It may have had something to do with the fact that on one episode of her show, she featured Rock Hudson, who by that point was visibly sick with AIDS. And of course, there was a huge social stigma with all of that because, you know, it was primarily homosexual people that had it and it was the 80s. And need I say more? Rock Hudson would die from the disease a year later. Doris would later say of her friends being on her show and seeing him after all of those years, quote, he was very sick, but I just brushed that off and I came out and put my arms around him and said, I am glad to see you. Doris moved up to Carmel-by-the-Sea in the 1980s to be near her son and his family, where she enjoyed a quiet life. She apparently loved going to Safeway, which is like a grocery store on the West Coast, and driving around with her many rescue animals. She opened a pet-friendly hotel there, which was featured in magazines as it was one of the first. After that, Doris didn't really feel the need to leave home that much. She was inducted into the Ohio Women's Hall of Fame in 1981 and received the Cecil B. DeMille Award for her career achievement in 1989. But on top of that, Doris declined tribute offers from AFI, the American Film Institute, as well as the Kennedy Center Honors because they both would require that she attend the event in person. In 2004, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President George W. Bush for her achievements in the entertainment industry as well as for her work on behalf of animals. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences even offered her an honorary Oscar on several occasions, but she declined as she saw the film industry as part of her past. Day received a Grammy for Lifetime Achievement in Music in 2008, but did not attend that ceremony either. She also received Grammy Hall of Fame awards in 1998, 1999, and 2012 for several different recordings that she did. She was inducted into the Hit Parade Hall of Fame in 2007, and in 2010 received the first Legend Award presented by the Society of Singers. In April 2014, Doris made an unexpected public appearance to attend the annual Doris Day Animal Foundation benefits. She granted ABC a telephone interview on her birthday in 2016 that was accompanied by photos of her life and career. In a rare interview with The Hollywood Reporter on April 4th, 2019, the day after her 97th birthday, Doris talked about her work on the Doris Day Animal Foundation as well as her film career. At that time, she named Calamity Jane as the favorite of her films. To commemorate her birthday pretty much since the 80s, 90s, Doris's fans would gather in late March each year for a three-day party in Carmel-by-the-Sea. The event was also a fundraiser for the Animal Foundation. During the 2019 occurrence, there was a special screening of Pillow Talk to celebrate its 60th anniversary. From what I can tell, this was Doris's last public appearance. Doris Day died at her home in Carmel Valley, California, on May 13, 2019, at the age of 97, after having contracted pneumonia. Her death was announced by her foundation. Per her request, the foundation announced that there would be no funeral services, grave marker, or any other public memorial. Doris Day, one of the most underrated actresses in Hollywood, was not only just a tremendous talent, but someone who spent her twilight years trying to make the world a better place for animals. Her talent lives on in her films and records, and her heart lives on through her charity. Hello? Miss Morrow? My name is Brad Allen. Yes? I've been advised by the phone company that there's a code number for our party line. It's 793. Now... If you have any future complaints to make, I suggest you dial it and complain to me personally. Why, Mr. Allen, if I hadn't complained, the inspector would never have found out how uh, cooperative you are. Miss Morrow, why are you so fascinated with my personal affairs? I'm not fascinated, Mr. Allen. Revolted. You don't see me going down to the phone company complaining about your affairs. I have none to complain about. It figures. What do you mean, it figures? Well, obviously. You're a woman who lives alone, doesn't like it. I happen to like living alone. Look, I don't know what's bothering you, but don't take your bedroom problems out on me. I have no bedroom problems. There's nothing in my bedroom that bothers me. Oh, that's too bad. Mr. Allen, let's try to be adult about this and and work out some sort of schedule where I can make my business calls and you can make your... Whatever you call the calls you make. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account, which features my watch lists, film diary, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've got the Buy Me A Coffee. Kristen, thank you so much. I checked the emails on a Sunday and I see you sent it like earlier last week. I promise I wasn't ignoring you. I'm just really, really, really bad at checking my uh, emails for this podcast. It so completely blows my mind that people that I don't know listen to this podcast. I'm glad that I accompany you on the walks with you and your doggie. That's so cool. It's so it's just crazy that people actually are finding this podcast f- four years in or whatever it is. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're looking into the life of the bombshell that was Jane Russell. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Hey okay,